0: Hey everybody, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast.
1: What is the meaning of this movie?
0: My name is Jared, I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew, we got Ryan.
1: Hey, what's up film fans?
0: And Austin. Yo. And joining us again from the Funhouse YouTube channel and the House Podcast is Adam Kovic. How's it going, Adam?
2: It's going well. I got lost and I found you and you said you want to be on a podcast and I said yes. Alright, <laughs> <Welcome. laughs> good to have you back. All right, before
0: we get started, first I want to issue another correction. I've been fucking Uh-oh. up a lot lately, but last week I said that there were three Battle Royale movies. There's actually only two. I was confused because there was a re-release of Battle Royale 3D, and I just assumed that the three was like a double meaning. Oh. It was like Battle Royale 3 in 3D, but it's not. Okay,
1: good.
3: Hmm.
0: Second thing, um, I wanted to go over some very kind people that left us review on iTunes. Uh, If you guys have time, uh, leave us a review on iTunes means a lot to us. This one is from Raymundo. Raymundo. He says, good quality entertainment. I've always been a fan of the YouTube channel, but often felt like it lacked a truly satisfying wisecrack critical analysis of the films that they talk about. But at last that void has been filled. And now I I am content with all that is wisecrack. Thank you, Raymundo. This one is from Lodos09. All your podcasts are great. My Skinner Box brain has a rush of good endorphins every time I see a new episode is available. Thank you, sir. And this one is from Plamtina. She says, he or she says, Wisecrack is so smart, but also easy to understand. The intern is great with the other humans in there. Great Earth content. I got an Earthling cinema joke in there. All right, Cool. <laughs> All right, guys, so today we are talking about the 1977 movie written and directed by David Lynch starring Jack Nance, Eraserhead. Let's go ahead and get some first impressions. (laughs) First time you watched the movie, most recent time you've watched the movie. Let's start with our guest, Adam.
2: Oh, wow. Hey. Um, I'm a giant hypocrite because I do consider myself a David Lynch fan, but I had never seen Eraserhead until you invited me on the podcast, and I was like, well, I should do this. It's... Are you, do you guys have movies in your lives like this where you know everything about it, but you've never actually seen it, but yeah. you do feel like you have seen it? That was many ar- of those. Yeah. And so Eraserhead was something that, it was one of those movies my mom wouldn't let me watch. So I knew of it. I saw pieces of it. I read up on it. I've seen so many behind the scene documentaries on it, all the stuff. So it was kind of fun actually sitting down and just watching the movie. I will say of all the David Lynch movies, it's actually probably one of the easier ones to follow. Yeah. I think once you figure out the basic allegory, it's a pretty straightforward movie. And I think it's actually, if anything, I think this is something that should be taught in film school. It obviously is, but this is a movie that I think you can sit someone down and go, this is how you make a movie for nothing. Yeah. And this is also Mm. how you do it in the 70s. Yeah. So if you want to make a movie today, you have no roadblocks because look what that man did. You could do the same.
0: All right, cool. And real quick, I just want to hear if you're a David Lynch fan. What are your top top Lynch movies?
2: Uh, number one's *Mulholland Drive*. Okay, uh, and then *Blue Velvet*. Do you say top five or just top couple? Can know? I put *Dune* in there multiple times? Or no? just, oh my <laughs> god, <I'm just> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, that's actually the one I haven't seen no. b- because of that.
2: You know? Um, yeah, breaking down, it would be uh, the two I just mentioned, and then uh, *Lost Highway*. I actually, you know, put a racer head up there now too. I he hasn't made a movie that I, I dislike and I haven't seen Inland Empire, so we'll just leave it there.
1: Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to Ryan. Um, yeah, I love this movie. This movie is great. Um, my, uh, uh, I, I'm very curious to hear the allegory cause I've never had this movie really explained to me really. I just have, I've absorbed it a couple times and I love every minute of it, but I definitely couldn't tell you what david lynch was going for but i don't think he would he would if he was here he'd really You're care. <laughs> you know um you'd right. be like hey it's just about the feeling man which yeah the the mood is the movie it's yes. kind of the my summary review of this movie um so yeah i'm excited to talk about just the form of it in general because yeah it's amazing you know you you, you say he, he made this for nothing though but like and, and I agree that there's no roadblocks now for c- in cinema especially, but it seems like this movie took a lot of money even for then. Like, at least with the effects and the scenes that, or the, the sets that they all built, it seems like still it still a pretty took a lot a, of ambitious, ambitious undertaking for a in- low-budget independent movie is all I'm saying. Um, but yeah, my favorite um, uh, David Lynch movies, number one, Wild at Heart,
3: number two, Mulholland Drive, number three, Blue Velvet. Okay, cool. All right, moving on to Austin. Uh yeah, this actually was the first time that I'd ever seen Eraserhead Shit. as well. Uh, um, I mean, it, it's I, I'm always hesitant to say I'm a fan of of any particular director because I'm very impermanent just in my life in general. So I uh, I don't really I'm not like committed to David Lynch, but I think he's an extremely fascinating and competent and important filmmaker. So I am committed to David
1: Lynch <laughs> Me <too. laughs> I mean yeah, I mean I guess the day in I my, die.
3: I, like in my life I'm just not like even sports franchises, right? Like I I'm more into like the players than I have been like the franchise. So I don't know. It's just like a weird personality trait, I guess, or flaw depending on Wait, you. Wait, so ask. you
1: don't like the you like
3: the movies, you're just not committed to the filmmaker? Yeah, exactly exactly and okay. to me I don't need to make that like abstraction to the mind behind it I'm completely content with just enjoying the content as individual pieces if that makes sense mm-hmm. and if it just happens to be the fact that they have a commonality because they derive from a common source then that's great um that's if you really ask me so in that sense like I like David Lynch films but I feel like this film, is something that, again, like Adam was just saying, like, I feel like I've known so much about this. I feel like I know more about David Lynch from reading about him and hearing people talk about him than I actually do from even seeing his films. Like, I've seen Blue Velvet. I've seen Inland Empire. I've seen Mulholland Drive. uh, And I've now seen Eraserhead. Never seen Dune. Never seen Wild at Heart. Um, I like Twin Peaks, but I have not seen the reboot. And I'm not, like, racing to get it, to get to it. Does that make sense? Like... I feel like sure. it's more like an intellectual mm-hmm. thing for me. Is it one of
2: those weird situations, too, where sometimes the creator is more infamous than the content they are creating? Yeah, I mean, because how, many, could,
3: how it, many times do people say, oh, it's so Lynchian, right? <laughs> it's like turned into a a, a, a verb now is like mm-hmm. uh, or an adjective. I mean, it's it's Lynchian cinema or it's yeah. a Lynchian th- mood or it's a this guy's very Lynch. Or this film is very Lynchian. Did it have a long shot that held on something that had some
2: weird audio effect that wasn't quite music, but right. it had like it just went for a little too long. It's like Lynchian. Right. Did or it if it's zoom into a surreal? light bulb Lynchian. or
3: something. Yeah. So but I mean, all that to say, um, I find this film to be extremely fascinating. I'm not sure that I can make a value judgment like if I like it or don't like it. I'm not sure that this type of film is even meant for that. Does that make sense?
0: Uh, yeah. All right. Cool. Well, <laughs> I fucking love this movie. I have seen it so many times. I've probably seen this movie more times than any other David Lynch movie. Maybe other than Mulholland Drive. Maybe I've seen more times. Um, I, I've seen this movie in times where I had no idea what the hell was going on. I've seen this movie times where I had like these moments of clarity that. Aren't even necessarily like narrative clarity. Like, there weren't times where I was like, oh my god, I know exactly what's going on, but the movie would capture me and put me in this mind space where I felt like, you know, I was just constantly being sucked in. Like, even if, you know, in a traditional narrative movie, you might have beats or how conflict escalates and it draws you deeper and deeper in. I felt like on some level, this movie would draw me deeper and deeper in, even on a level outside of plot in which I had Mm -hmm. no idea what was happening in any literal sense, but on some sort of subconscious level, I just, I was just into it. I was like, yes, this doesn't make sense, but it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's really special to me, you know, for somebody Mm -hmm. who spends his time watching and, analyzing and trying to get you know salient ideas out of movies, I'm really, really appreciative and just grateful that something exists that is able to thwart all my efforts at analyzing it, and yet I'm still just as transfixed, probably even more transfixed. So I love the hell out of this movie. Uh, actually, about a week ago or two weeks ago, uh, David Lynch's memoir slash biography, because it's both written by a biographer and him separately, um, just recently came out. And it's called Room to Dream, and I've been reading that. So uh, I've got a couple of quotes to bring into what we're discussing here. But for my favorite Lynch films, I've... I I mean, my my favorite Lynch property is Twin Peaks Season 3.
1: And it's not a reboot. It is Season 3. If Twin Peaks is in the in, in uh, the yeah, running, I mean, then that's my number one. But. Okay, sure. If we're just talking about
0: movies, I would put this one up there. I would also put Lost Highway up there. The one that's firmly at the bottom for me is the one that's at the top for Ryan, which is Wild at Heart. Oh, I don't you think, son I don't, of a bitch! I, that's just, the only Lynch movie, or the only thing Lynch has ever made, that doesn't work for me.
1: Oh, work even, even Dune
2: you would say works
0: for
1: you? I, you I, that's not, that's can, the one I haven't seen. Dune does not yeah. work at all for but, me, or Lost Highway. But it didn't
2: work for David Lynch either. Right. I mean, they...
1: Dune doesn't work for any sane human, I don't yeah. feel because it, 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 it literally doesn't make sense literally doesn't make sense. that's actually the chapter
0: that i'm just at so i'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually curious to learn about it. it's a it's a huge studio fiasco right yeah, well, yeah. story behind that i yeah. mean his name's
2: not on it so i don't know if you could technically call it a david lynch movie
0: oh really is yeah. it just no director is credited uh, alan
2: smithy i believe
0: oh okay so it's a pseudonym
2: it's it's the i mean have you you seen the documentary uh i'm gonna pr- Jordi oski's yeah. dune uh, yeah. no i
0: haven't No one's great it's, it's
2: really good does it
0: does it cover the Lynch era? Like, oh, absolutely. You... Oh, okay. Like,
2: I mean, uh, to the point where they talk about how this is what it was going to be, and then Star Wars came out and ruined everything because they're like, "We need a Star Wars. Make Star Wars." So that's why you got what you got. But it's still David Lynch inspired. But then Sting's there, and no one wanted Sting there, and it, it's a whole. <laughs> oh yeah. It's a big mess. So okay. um, I'm I'm excited that. Uh, I forget the director's name, The and he just did Blade Runner's doing Dune. So. Oh, Villa. I'm not even going to say, say it. Yeah, because D- I'm going to fuck it up. I will. I will call him Denny.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Good old friend, Denny. Like,
0: like in the room. Denny. Yeah. Anyway. All right, so before we go into the recap, Ryan is going
1: to attempt a recap. Go for all it, right. Ryan. All right. Eraserhead. A man is on vacation, finds out he has alien baby, finds a mysterious <laughs> shelf, has sex with his neighbor in goop. His head falls off, and a child takes it and turns it into erasers. He wakes up. His baby won't stop laughing, so he he stabs it. Shit hits the fan. The end. All right. Cool. Pretty <laughs> pretty accurate. Pretty accurate. Um, That's what I got at the end of that movie. All right, and I so, loved every second of it.
0: Let me give you—you uh, you know, I'm going to do something unconventional. I was actually going to uh, read this after the recap, but I'm going to do it before the recap. So I'm actually going to start this conversation with a quote from David Foster Wallace. He says, an academic definition of Lynchian might be the term that refers to a particular kind of irony where the very macabre and the very mundane combine in such a way as to reveal the former's perpetual contaminant with the latter. So this will be more relevant to what basically, and once again, I just want to make a, a, a statement here that. If you analyze this movie and try to derive anything concrete for it, you are missing the point. To Ryan's to what Ryan said earlier, yes, the tone is the movie. So although because what we do is we kinda analyze and stuff like that, we will do a little bit of that. But ultimately I don't want us to, you know, have to feel like we're trying to like, you know, derive some sort of political or philosophical statement because I, I just think that it's we don't just have not appropriate.
1: To, we don't have to show them the meaning.
0: We, I mean, it is, the, if the meaning is the tone, then we I'm, show I'm, them that. I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> All right, anyway, so uh, let's go into a recap. Oh, and I'm oh, sorry, to re- say that the David Foster Wallace thing, the whole point is that I think what he's saying is how Lynch will kind of dramatize the mundane in a very dark, macabre way. It's almost as if he's taking something very mundane and just dramatizing it in the most dark, absurd way possible. So if you take, if you strip away the movie of the bizarre props, the sound design, It's actually a very basic story, like what Adam is saying, so let's just go into it. So Now, there are some elements here that are not accounted for in this recap that I don't think make sense, but this is the general thing. So, inside a planet, a mysterious figure pulls two levers, catapulting us into the mind space of our protagonist, Henry. Henry is on the way back to his apartment when his beautiful neighbor across the hall informs him that a woman named Mary called and asked him to dinner with her parents. Henry arrives at Mary's house, where things are immediately awkward. Tension boils over at the dinner table, and Mary's mother tells Henry that Mary has recently given birth to a deformed baby of sorts, and that Henry is the father. So Henry and Mary get married, move in together, and start taking care of the baby. The baby's incessant crying and stubborn behavior causes Mary to leave. When the baby gets sick, Henry seeks serenity inside the radiator, where he meets a woman with large cheeks stomping on umbilical cords that resemble the baby. Back at his apartment, Henry is seduced by the beautiful woman across the hall, but once she notices the baby, she is mortified. That night, Henry fantasizes again about the woman in the radiator, but this dream quickly turns into a nightmare when his head pops off and his brain is sold to make erasers on pencils. Henry still lusts after the woman across the hall, and the baby starts to laugh at his humiliation. When Henry sees her coming home with a new guy, Henry tries to cut the baby out of its bandages and kills it. The man in the planet laughs as his levers malfunction, and Henry unites with the woman in the radiator. End of movie. All right, well, Ryan, I want to hear, what do, what does that sound like to you? You mean what? The is, recap. Like, does that sound like? It sound like
1: a pretty thorough recap. What say, do you mean?
0: I, well, I'm just saying you said that, like, you weren't able to really derive a
1: meaning out of it. Like, oh, does no. that resonate? I just thought it was funny when you write down everything that happens in this movie and read it out, and you if you gave it to someone who'd never seen it, they'd be like, wait, what? Hmm. You know? Um, that, that's all I was commenting on. But yeah, I, I I'm just as engrossed the movies as you guys it
2: feels like a test if you're showing if you're if you're raising a child and you were raising them on film on one hand you show them robocop which is a very literal movie fun (laughs) movie um and then when they got a little bit older you would say now watch this and if they went if if they could derive any meaning out of it that would mean that they're starting to use their brain a little bit more than they would watching like a fast and the furious movie where they are not taking everything at face value you go oh does that represent that and they go good for you 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 can now read books that are probably you know too old for you. So it's, I, I it's it's this sounds so up my own ass, but the that's, film no, that's the, what we do here. The film <laughs> is the film is art. Yeah, and yeah. And that, that is like that the most base level what art can be is like what do you interpret from this thing? It's it's up there with a, a painting on a wall. That's Well, what's
0: yeah, cool and, about and it. he started off as a painter, and I think that there's a certain level of maturity. It's all that you get through at some point in your life where you realize that, you know, some things you have to just suspend your desire to make literal sense out of something. Unless and if you can do that, then you can appreciate it and enjoy it. But if you're, you know, if you're so stubborn as to try and look for motivation for every detail, it's going to thwart you and it's going to disappoint you.
1: Well, I there's... think David Foster Wallace is straight as uh, right on, though, you know, like every one of his movies, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive has that kind of. He kind of made that subgenre of like the, the the, the everyday neighborhood, but the creepy undertone vibe, you twisted know? Americana, like, yeah, like of... yeah, Stepford Wives kind of a vibe um, that he perverted. <laughs> So let me um, start
0: this off. Let me read a quote from uh, his biography that just came out, which I really recommend if if you guys out there are uh, David Lynch fans, it's called Room to Dream. The structure of it is really interesting. The first chapter is written by his biographer, and then the second chapter is basically like a Fine Brothers React video. He reads the chapter and then basically writes his own chapter. That's kind of like a, a correction or a reflection on him yeah, reading his own awesome biography. Way to do
1: a autobiography. Yeah.
0: Um, Lynch has commented that I felt Eraserhead. I didn't think it. And anyone who fully surrenders to the film understands what he means. Much has been made of the queasy humor of Eraserhead, but to focus on its comical aspects is to give a superficial reading of a multi-layered work. A magisterial film that operates without any filters of sort, Eraserhead is pure id. The narrative of the movie is simple. Living in a dismal post-industrial dystopia, a young man named Henry meets a girl named Mary who becomes pregnant. Henry is gripped with anxiety as the rival of their deformed infant and longs for the release of the horror he feels. He experiences the mystery of the erotic, then the death of the child, and finally, the divine intercedes and his torment ends. In a sense, it's a story about grace. Um, so I'm not saying that that's, I mean, that that did not come from Lynch, that came from his biographer, and I don't think we should take that as, like, a canon reading, but I think that, I mean, that's, I didn't get that the first time I watched it, but that's basically what I get after repeated viewings. Well, I have heard
3: Lynch say that when he was making this film that he had a couple of inspirations, Gogol and Kafka, but he said that he opened up the Bible and read one verse and closed the Bible, and then that kind of helped him, uh, in his formation of this film. So he says that in a way, this is actually his most spiritual film. And he's not saying that it's like some sort of literal representation of biblical themes or anything like that. But I think his point is is that it's uh, it's like aiming towards the transcendent or to the mysterious or to the esoteric or to the that which is just beyond the grasp in a very intentional sense, whether it's felt or intellectualized. I think that is kind of what he meant when he, uh, when he said that. Do you know the verse? No, he doesn't even remember. That's what he said. He said he doesn't even remember what it was now, but it was something at the time that he read, and he was just like, okay, closed it, and then it kind of just gave him a a moment of inspiration. Don't put corn and beans in the same hole. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be that's why there's that bit about heaven, that 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 everything in heaven is going to be fine. This idea of maybe some sort of eschatological or soteriological, which means like salvation, right? Some sort of escape from the suffering or inadequacies or anxieties of this world, because... The main character, dude, I mean he's constantly thwarted in his desire, right? Like that's what this film really puts on display is that he is this perpetually dissatisfied figure. And uh, it's this battle between his desires and his inability to attain the objects of his desire and then his covering over that inability with fantasies that he is is, is playing with and the tension that you get with the lack and then the excess between those two. And maybe heaven is like this image of fantastic final culmination or something and so maybe that's part of the spirituality that that lynch was exploring whereas i think his other films they're a little bit bleaker well in this movie
0: you can argue that he gets literal salvation in the sense that yeah he is overcome by anxiety not only in the plot but in the visuals and especially in the sound design i mean this whole thing has these droning industrial sounds it'll crescendo and get really screechy you can just feel the anxiety in everything from the sound and then at the end you know in a sense there is like a deus ex machina like everything goes to shit and he just achieves his fantasy which is the woman in the radiator
3: right right and uh so there's a philosopher
0: murdering a baby right right And, and that's like clearly like literally god just like plucks you out of your worst nightmare and says here's paradise
3: or maybe it's the idea that the only way that you can ever achieve the satisfaction of your desire is through some sort of radical immolation there has to be some sort of destruction in order to pacify your anxieties, so that you can actually indulge in your fantasies. And and I think that there's something really interesting. And I think you see this theme throughout Lynch's works is that it's about that tension between fantasy and desire as lack. And um, well, how would you work
0: that with the? Because I I think one of the interesting things is the woman in the radiator versus the beautiful woman across the hall, because. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it, you know, it uses some pretty clear, common archetypal uh, structures. So, like, the woman in the radiator is associated with white. She's crazy wholesome. She's got white cheeks. Her, yeah. her hands are in this, like, semi-prayer situation. And uh, their moments of bliss and intimacy are, like, these explosions of blissful, bright light. Whereas the beautiful woman across the hall is associated with darkness and lust, and their intimate moment is them making love in like a black boiling pit. So there is this kind of discrepancy between like almost a lustful desire and a more idealistic desire that ultimately is his salvation at the end.
3: Sure, but uh, before that, he get before he gets to that point, which only happens after he kills the baby. Before then, he can't actually even touch the woman in the radiator whenever he tries to. I don't think that that white light is a good thing. I think that's the the barrier that prevents him from actually touching what Jacques Lacan would call the real. He's not able to touch the object of his desire. And so that's why you get that cutaway in the shot, reverse shot, where he actually isn't there anymore. And then it goes back to to her. And then they try to touch again, and it goes to white again. And then it goes back, and he's there. And then it goes back to her, and she's not there. And so there's this – there's this – uh, absence and presence that is perpetually thwarting his ability to actually touch the woman in the radiator until he kills the baby, then he can go and indulge in the fantasy, and that's where you get that strange tension so all of it up to then is this interplay of uh the object of your desire, which is you know the woman across the hall and um the idea that they do have this fantastic sexual encounter, which I thought was a dream I didn't think it was real um so it's a dream i I, the way that i kind of read it um and then you get the experience of her actually hooking up with another dude that pisses him off to the point where he then kind of retreats back into his room and that's what kind of pushes him to have to kill the baby it's because he realizes that he can't get this other object of his desire so there's this perpetual inability to have a sexual relation which again is something that jacques lacan talks about he says there is no such thing as a sexual relation and what he means is is that All of our encounters are ultimately mediated through the fantasy. There's no such thing as a pure encounter with another person, but it's always this fantasy that we're living that both uh, stifles our ability to be satisfied and then at the same time perpetually drives us on to seek more satisfaction.
0: So one of the things I think is super interesting about this movie is um, so um, you never know where the line like, when should I start consuming this as plot and how should I start consuming this as excess? And um, so, for example, I would say so the way that you and I are interpreting this differently, Austin, is that I would say that he has the se- he does have a sexual experience with the woman across the hall, but she sees the baby and that grosses her out and freaks her out. And then that's why the kid starts laughing at him is that, and you could argue that this is some sort of metaphor for sexual humiliation. Maybe it wasn't that she was disgusted by the kid so much as maybe he couldn't perform. And so the kid, the the kid is laughing at him either a, because he fucked up the romantic experience or B because he's impotent. And then, then when he sees her with the other guy, he's like completely humiliated. And that's why he takes it out on the baby.
3: Yeah, I mean, either way, the baby seems to, to absolutely stand for some sort of castrating barrier to his enjoyment, right? Like something, right. Uh, no matter what, whether it's the, the relationship that he has with Mary or this supposed desire that he has for this woman across the hall or even the, the woman in the radiator that might be the sort of overcoming of all of those other tensions. The baby is some sort of barrier that that prevents him from that, and so that seems to be on clear display. That, that's the one thing that might actually be literal, it's a baby
2: and I think if you're yeah I mean that's it, it's no I don't think it's a it's a mistake or it's an accident that the character Henry dresses and kind of looks like David Lynch and he was he yeah. and he he had a child at this point he had a daughter yeah. and that's probably something that whether he knew subconsciously whether he knew it or not he was projecting that having a child means you can't have a certain life anymore. And that is the way I look at everything to me in this movie was a dream or a way you would interpret something if you were uh, high in DMT or something like that. It's like it's like a lucid dream. So there's a really good moment where the woman looks at him and it's his body with the baby's head. And that could be Henry either thinking that's how she sees him or that's how she sees him. Either way, it's it's Sorry. I would rather be with this guy with a weird scar on his face or, like, a burn mark, whatever that guy was, than you because you have a baby. And that, that to me, was, like, almost literal. Like, that. except the baby happens to be this creepy puppet
1: it's also worth noting yeah to to your point that uh he he was in his like early to mid 30s when he was making this you know he was it was late in his you know he hadn't really had a a filmmaking career you know he'd gone to afi was making this at the time and so yeah it is kind of interesting that you bring that up that that this movie is kind of about how shitty <laughs> raising a kid is, you know, while he had a kid. I wonder how Jennifer Lynch feels about that. I think <laughs> she's that, in the movie. That, that's her name, right? Yeah, she's in the she's in the movie, and I mean, he was living at
0: AFI. Like most of the movie is shot at AFI on one of the studios, which is actually very close to where we are right yeah. now. And he was living there during the thing, and it took him. He started production at the end of 1971 and it didn't come out till 1977. I mean, he created every single element. And, um, you know, earlier Adam said that, you know, like this is a, this is a lesson for independent filmmakers. I agree, but I also think that like, you know, David Lynch is such a genius that like, you know, man, like I don't think, I just don't think anyone or, or that any normal person could be as resourceful and as creative as him you know what I'm saying like it's inspiring.
1: yeah I, I think no it really should is.
2: serve as inspiration where I, I'm almost positive I'm, I would love to hear his thoughts on it obviously but the what the thing I I took from this was certain things like the man in the planet or all these different things are they're there because he couldn't do a certain thing mm. he 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 thought it was art through adversity he thought how can I creatively showcase an impregnation because the technology to put a camera inside a woman doesn't exist yet, you know. Not until "Look Who's Talking." Did we get that miracle? <laughs> <laughs> but and, and he he the was. void
3: took it to the next level, okay. right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Exactly. So, I I think just because he's naturally a creative person, I think that that does serve as that should be inspirational to anyone. Where you go, it's it's great to tell people no, because then you have to think, okay, well, how can I creatively get around this? And I'm that that's what this entire movie feels like.
0: Dude, I, I love that interpretation. I would never really come up with an idea of what the what the man in the planet was. I think that him kind of making the the pregnancy happen is great. It's interesting in in the book. So first of all, the guy in the planet is Jack Fisk, who's a very famous oh yeah production designer. Production designer, and him and uh, David Lynch like grew up together, and Jack Fisk married Sissy Spacek. Sissy Spacek and um, anyway, so helped, that's him. I think she
3: helped fund it too through that connection. Is because mm-hmm. they kept running out of money, and yeah. both Fisk and Spacek actually contributed their private Spacek. funds to help him finish the project over the years.
0: Thank you, sissy, Sp- sissy Sa- Spa- if I'm going to fuck sissy Spacek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't fucking say it. Uh, but anyway, Holly Hunter Jack- or Holland Hunt. Oh <laughs> Holland Hunt. yeah, don't give me that shit. Uh, so Jack Fisk actually says. And of course, this is not rule of law. But he says, head is about karma. The man in the planet is pulling levers to symbolize karma." Now, that's just the man who plays him. I don't really buy that. I watched the film last night with that in mind, and I'm like, I don't, I don't see it. But
2: yeah, I, I, I even watching it the first time, the first thing I thought of of seeing, uh, I think the first image you see is the the sperm type creature coming out of Henry's mouth, and then a man who is something pulling levers and then the sperm being thrown into a puddle. I saw that as that that's what I would do if I didn't want to film two people having sex in a movie because mm. I, <laughs> because that makes me uncomfortable. Mm. I don't want to put these two people in a weird situation. So like, how can we creatively do this thing other than a train going through a tunnel, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um and because he if, if you've ever watched um the short films of David Lynch,
1: yeah. That's yeah. it's
2: a great DVD collection. Watch how he does the ABCs. Like, mm. he, he, he made a horror film, basically, of his little sister singing the ABCs, and it's frightening. So, <laughs> he he's a guy who I think can figure a moment out like that, and probably is really good at interpreting his thoughts and dreams better than most people are.
1: Oh, yeah. So, see, I, I, I would uh, uh, say that, um, like, to Jack Fisk's point, like, about what you said, it, it's about uh, karma—, karma. It makes more sense if it's like about fate, right? Like it's like this, there's just somebody behind, you know, pulling yeah. the levers on your life, kind of, and and kind of like to David Lynch. You know, it should be noted that he's a really heavy into transcendental meditation, right? So all this dream stuff, he was is, can he, be led to that. He
0: was uh, introduced to transcendental meditation like midway through the film, and then, and it's said that like the film did undergo some rewrites when he uh, discovered. Maharish yogi or whatever his name is
1: and to in terms of the form of how he really creates the dream aspect like when you leave the theater and you're like what the fuck did I just watch I feel like the the one trope that he does a lot to awesome effect and a few other movies do this is the kind of Mobius strip uh, structure that he does where where he begins and ends in the same at the same place, right? So he does that in Eraserhead. You know, you kind of begin and end with the man and the planet. You don't see him. It, it, it bookends the movie. Then Mahal Drive's the best example of it, where literally the whole movie is like, it, it goes in a circle if you follow the structure, right? Almost in a time travel manner. And then the same thing uh, with, like, Inland Empire and stuff. And uh, uh, anyway, he, he uses it to where basically it feels, it creates this effect that where you're like, where you get to the same point and it, yeah, it's a dreamlike narrative structure that I feel like that he uses awesomely. So Adam Adam mentioned
0: uh, the uh, sperm look-like things. Uh, I, there are a couple of facts in this book. Those are real umbilical cords Oof. that that Jack Fisk got from a hospital and he told the hospital that they were just going to be like, in jars in the background of a movie. But nope, they were throwing them against walls and <laughs> stomping them and all sorts of shit. Another uh, fun piece of trivia before I move on. So I remember years ago, Ryan told me that um no one knows how he made the baby That's and i just legend uh, and i just assumed that you know that was i'm also very skeptical of imdb trivia i kind of like in our fake news era i'm just like you know man who checks that shit but in the book you're right
3: nobody knows he won't Apparently, tell anybody he blindfolded the projectionist so that even the projectionist wouldn't kind of see the gag so there's all this speculation whether it's like the a, a lamb fetus or if it's yeah. a, a rabbit or whatever there are all these various theories out there so no one yeah so no that one knows There
0: in the book it seems to suggest that David Lynch has a very uh he's not a he's not freaked out by dead things he loves he made these things called kits we would literally take a dead animal and like dissect it and create like a little art kit based on this dead thing so i think that that's probably why he's kept it a secret is because it is probably it is it is probably like a a, a, he's probably puppeteering some sort of dead animal
2: Uh, he maybe channeled his serial killer instincts (laughs) into directing so hey that's healthy that's good yeah No no one's died as a direct result of one of his films, so that's good. Um, I think I'm fairly certain, though. Watching that thing, it's too good to be a puppet. I'm almost positive it is a. It was once a living thing. Yeah. Um, I don't. I. I mean, I guess is there are there no medical records of what a lamb fetus looks like? Could we not do this research ourselves? How long would it last?
3: Right. If it weren't that's the scary question. And how long did they shoot? I mean, they clearly had that thing on set for a long time. I guess if it was embalmed, that yeah, was the theory. Was say, yeah. yeah, but
2: maybe for just how how wet that thing is and yeah. how it moves and all. How it they make is... His eyes
1: move. Oh god! I, I bet know. he had a bunch of them. You
3: know,
1: <laughs> he I, getting, don't know. I don't where's know. Where's he getting <laughs> these feet eye? <high? laughs> um, maybe he's got
3: a friend that's a veterinarian and just is like, "Hey, whenever you put down a little baby lamb, send that little fucker my way." I don't know. <laughs> All right, moving on to something <laughs> too dark, less too horrifying.
0: Dark. <laughs> yeah, I'm not in the animals thing. Um, all right, so actually a uh, fun anecdote I wanted to bring up real quick uh, and more to the point of just how masterfully this movie is made and why David Lynch, I think, is one of the top directors of all time. So Ryan and I actually saw David Lynch present Eraserhead at the Egyptian Theater a couple of years ago, and Ryan actually got his autograph, which I'm very jealous of. Did you Have you lost it? Did you still have it, yeah, Ryan? I still have it. You still have it? Cool. Um, but anyway, someone asked David Lynch a question That uh, has stuck with me for a long time. And the question was, like, what is the most important element of being a good filmmaker? And he said it's the wrong question because the real answer is that every single element, whether it's the sound design, the acting, the music, the cinematography, the framing, every one of them is of monumental importance. And I think that more to the point of us saying that this is a movie that you feel rather than you think about. You know, once again, this movie wouldn't be the movie without the sound design or without the cinematography or without things that other filmmakers might use as like supplementary materials. But to him, every one of these elements can potentially be the primary tool. And, um, you know, and I think that like more, more than it being cheap, like that's what you need to teach an independent filmmaker if you're going to be inspired by this is that like don't think that you need to create something with dialogue and characters and arcs and stuff like that. Just create something and like you know truly understand the potential of every tool in the filmmaker's toolbox. Mm-hmm. Just
1: David Lynch and Sam Raimi is all you need to learn <laughs> when you're growing up. I,
2: I would say and Robert Rodriguez, especially. Sure, early yeah. he, he is basically a film teacher that got a few you know good Shark Boy and Lava Girls out of him. So
1: and Linklater too. Linklater, yeah,
2: absolutely. Those are those are if anyone's ever interested in filmmaking, those are good like entry points to like basically take a free class in filmmaking is watch any of their movies with director's commentary. I think those are, especially like David Lynch. Um, but going, going back to like the film school thing or whatever, talking about it. But, um, the moment where Henry meets the family, Mm -hmm. I thought was, that's when the movie really clicked for me. Cause I was like, Oh, he's so good at these moments of making an interaction play out. Almost like how he probably felt something. He's so good at conveying feeling through film. Right. Because all those awkward things, if you take it literal, you go, everyone's acting really weird. But if you sort of look at it from an allegory perspective, that's probably how he felt. He felt so sick that guts were coming out of a chicken and people are just smiling at
3: him and he felt uneasy. And he somehow translated that into a film. That, to me, was genius. And he did become vegetarian when he took up TM. So he gave up alcohol. He stopped smoking. He became vegetarian. So this I mean, there's a difference between representational art, right? Where, like, this person represents that kind of person, or this scene represents this particular social conflict. And then what we might call expressional art. And. He's an expressionist in that sense that exactly like you guys are saying, it's something that just kind of flows forth from him. I, I don't know that I don't think that there's not – I mean, I don't think that I would say that it's like non-intellectual and that it's just purely mood or feeling because I don't know if you can separate the two. Because I actually think this film is extremely uh, – it, it comes from his intellect but I think it's also aimed at an audience's intellect, not just – the mood, because even deconstructing the normal, right? Like like the one of the, the scenes that got me was when Mary is in bed and she's rubbing her eyes, and it's just like that rubbing noise. Like, it sounds like mm-hmm. rubber rubbing together. And I'm rubbing my eye right now, and you can't hear the noise, but there's something about Lynch's profound discomfort within himself. Like I feel like he feels that, or he's at least able to. I don't know if he walks around all the time, like a neurotic but I think he's able to feel that type of neurosis and like uh, I think Ryan said it earlier you know uh, or Jared what, you know kind of the everyday suburban life but then there's the macabre that infuses in all of these seemingly quote unquote normal things that we just kind of cover over with our fantasies and he's able to unpack them to deconstruct the normal by showing the abnormality that is normal. And I think there's something highly intellectual and intentional about that.
0: Interesting. So to your point, I want to go back to the uh, David Foster Wallace quote and how I think that you can look at this movie as kind of dramatizing the mundane in a very dark, macabre way. So, I mean, earlier on, we've already said it. The story itself is pretty mundane. It's a man impregnates a woman. They get married. They try to take care of the baby. It sucks. And he fantasizes of escape. And other women that's basically it mm-hmm. and so and now if you think about what is the movie i just watched obviously there's a lot of other shit going on and you're just like what the fuck but you can also take this down to like a little more scenic level so like the scene that adam is describing is basically just a guy meets the parents of a girl he just fucked and impregnated and it's awkward you know <laughs> and and you know yeah but plus that there's a dog there's a dog like breastfeeding a bunch of puppies. Um Mary has like a panic attack and the mother has to like brush her hair out for some reason to like make her stop freaking well, there's out.
2: There's even a random moment with a grandmother where the mother the mother's trying to make a salad and almost like a puppet controls the grandmother and makes the salad and take what you will from it, but everything is just just screams weird, like yeah. just So grandma yeah. has
1: a part in the in the dinner. It felt like for me.
0: <laughs> even even what's what's more common than the patriarch saying, "Come on in, we got chicken tonight," you know. <laughs> but mm-hmm. even those chickens are super small and are bleeding. And then the wife has like a, some sort of erotic panic attack at the table. I installed so, every
1: pipe in this neighborhood. Yeah. Look at my knees.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that scene was awesome.
1: Yeah, and then during yeah, that so scene good.
3: too, the the music or the the sound effects are so loud you can barely hear what the dad is. saying. Saying. so, it's yeah, it's really unnerving to to mm-hmm. even watch this normal like hey meet my father scene, you know,
0: right? It is the opposite. Of, it is the it is the hey meet my father scene, but the opposite of a normal one. Or maybe sure. maybe
3: that is the normal subjective experience of when you are meeting somebody's father in that kind of situation of duress and that sound that we hear is the feeling that you actually feel in your head when your blood is rushing and your palms are sweating and your heart is beating fast and your adrenaline is pumping. Maybe that's a sort of oral interpretation of the subjective anxiety that you feel in these quote-unquote normal situations that when you watch a normal film – a normal Hollywood movie covers over it and fantasizes all of these and romanticizes all of these things like, oh, meet my father. And, and yeah, they might pretend that there's some awkwardness, but it's you don't really you don't get to see and hear and feel the subjective awkwardness in the same way. And Lynch puts that in the forefront.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you guys about the comedy. I mean, uh, so I know that Austin and Adam, it's the first time you guys have seen it. Probably the first time I see it, like, the comedy was just lost to me because I was, like, so just being assaulted by, like, what am I watching? Huh. Did you guys, yeah. you, you guys I, picked up on it immediately?
2: I, I laughed especially at the the uh, the eraser head scene, <laughs> yeah. which I guess where the, they eventually came up with the name that they found in the edit, <laughs> I assume. I always thought it was called eraser head because his hair. Yeah. Uh, well, it's I based on,
3: Um, I think it's based on a sketch or a picture or a painting. It's based on a piece of art that lynch had some sort of vision that he had of um of basically that that little scene it's something along those lines that like they took gotcha. a guy's head and they turned it into erasers or some shit like that but it's based on some uh preceding artistic project that that whole scene to me
2: had me in a very dark humor type of way laughing it starts with the guy ringing the bell over and over and over and then just this so weird matter of fact of a child holding a head and then everyone nodding going, Yes mm-hmm, this makes mm-hmm. sense <laughs> and, and,
0: and, and like the guy who's like super sleazy who's like taking those dollars off and giving it to the kid you know it's,
2: it, it, it's just so that's so funny because that scene is the most that, that's the one that I got nothing out of. Yeah, like I, I feel like that's the one that's infinite or nothing. Where you go, oh, what it mean? It's so deep, and I could just see Lynch being like, "No, man, it's weird." I just want I I had access to a pencil factory,
1: and we shot a thing, and it's great, dude. Yeah, uh, see, I, I feel like you get the most out of that scene because because uh, you're like, oh, that's why this movie's called Eraserhead But, it, it, but it, you're like, wait, what? It's why? so non sequitur. <laughs> yeah, it feels almost why? like
2: a Family Guy skit. It's right, just like,
0: right. <laughs> and so that's what I meant by kind of when you're watching this movie, you don't know what to take as literal and what to take as excess because, like, there are these moments. Like, another thing is, like, the little thing that he gets in the small bla- black box that he puts in the cabinet and then it, like, starts running away. A oh,
2: little, uh, yeah, it does the claymation. little worm thing. A yeah, lot, yeah, I
0: don't know what that is. Like, that's just one of the times just where I'm, su- I'm suspending, you know, the my... Desire to come up with a cohesive narrative and just saying, "Well, that's just that's just excess," just like the eraser head quote dream.
2: But the the attention to detail too. Talking about the humor th- throughout the movie, he has this little dirt hill next to his bed, and there's like a little tree there. There's a scene where he's in the radiator, and they bring out a bigger version of it. And I'm like, "How did you know I was paying attention to that?"
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. It
2: it it had weird little moments like that, which I don't know if they were meant to be humorous, but I found humor in them.
0: There are some one of my my favorite comedy moment is. uh Mary's crying, the mother has just revealed that there's a
3: baby, and she goes,
0: you don't mind, do you, getting married?" Like, what kind of a... And he's just like, oh, no, it's fine. Like, this is like, like what kind of a question is that? And this is after uh, the a...
3: mom starts, like, necking him, too, a little bit. Yes, yes,
0: <laughs> which is super uncomfortable. I love it. The, there's a scene also, or there's a shot where right before Mary's about to leave him, she's like, goes under the bed, and, like, for a solid... 15 seconds, she's doing something.
1: She's getting a furniture out. She's getting a suitcase. The, yeah. but,
0: but but yeah, that's a great reveal because it's 15 seconds of her just making this grimacing face and her struggling with something. You're like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> what is going on? And then it's revealed, and after 15 seconds of confusion, it's revealed to be a suitcase. And I think that is a moment of laughter. Yes, there, that, that scene rules.
2: There's even a moment that I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be horror, horrific. But it, can't, it comes off as so kind of campy or funny when the baby has what I can only tell of maybe dead maggots in it or something. There's mm. all these, it's just, there's a flash. And all of a sudden he goes, Oh, you're sick. And it's like, yeah. That's your reaction to like, it,
1: it looks like literal death. Yeah.
2: And,
0: uh, How do you guys respond to the death of the baby? That It always. Kind of upsets me.
1: That's the scene where I'm like, like I'm I'm on board with the movie so much, but then I'm like, wait, what am I supposed to be taking from this movie? That's where I like, like uh, up till then I'm really, I don't, I, I feel like he doesn't really, he's not telling you one way or the other. But then I'm like, wait, am I supposed to hate this person now? He just killed an alien baby, but I don't know. What do you take?
0: I mean, I, I I mean, I I don't really think of it as like there being a higher meaning, but it kind of does. It it just that's the most disturbing part of the movie for me because exactly. like I don't think the that baby, baby deserves to die. Right? Yeah.
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, like it's it's guy. horrific. It is it is yeah. horrific, and I think the fact that it's like a weird lizard looking thing or whatever it is, um, I don't think that diminishes the empathy that it elicits by the fact that that's still a pretty horrific act, and I and I think that's. I mean, I think that's kind of a point that we can derive from it that um, that even though this abnormal slash normal um, experience that is that is on display, um, the reason that it's so sacrificial is because it still is a sacrifice. It's still it's still something that even though this is like a grotesque looking thing according to our standards of normalcy, it's still a very grotesque act, and that means that to make the sacrifice of desire in that kind of like interplay of desire and fantasy in order to do that you have to go to extreme measures and it isn't like some sort of like you must kill your baby thing but it's the fuck man like these these are the kind of horrific things that we do in our psyche um,
1: sacrifice
3: it, it, yeah, exactly. selfish
1: act of murder <laughs> austin
3: yeah but i think yeah but but i mean i think it, it, but it's still it's like in in the Bible when Abraham is gonna offer up and sacrifice his son, right? It's he's doing God it. God told him to. Right, right, and and literally I think, told him to. Right, and I think we could say maybe simultaneously. In so in Lacanian psychoanalysis, there's this idea of the big other, which is like this transcendent. So you can replace the big other with God for like an analogy's sake, right? That you have to sacrifice this thing so that you can cross that barrier into actual enjoyment like he can't get to the woman in the radiator there's an obstacle and so he has to sacrifice he has to sacrifice the baby
1: I get all that. It's more just—it's more just like, how are we supposed to feel uh, uh, towards the the main character at the end of the movie? Are we supposed to say, I think horrifying? You know, yes, he, he well, did, he did all, what he needed to do to achieve his higher. thing? Well, do we or... all
0: agree that it was an accident? Like he's tra- an accident. Well, he's
1: initially he's, trying to, he's trying to cut away the bandages. Right, that's what
0: I thought, and then he realizes either I fucked it up or the bandages are the body.
1: See, I, I took it as he undid the bandages and then saw his heart beating and then was like, die. Yeah, that's well, what I, I thought too. That's kind of a
2: mercy killing at that point. That's what I thought. I yeah. thought it
1: was oh, like you it was oh a mercy shit. Killing.
2: Oh well, because see, well, that would make it better, honestly, in my how, mind. How confused would you be if you cut off a cast and all of a sudden your entire arm was exposed? Right. Because it, it didn't it didn't look like he had no idea. This is what I'm just taking away from it that he was cutting the bandages that there would be I didn't expect this that Alt's guts would splay about right like that what hor- horrific doctor bandaged that up like that that's crazy and then it's just sitting there like it's okay. basically saying like kill me kill me kill me and it looks like it didn't look like he did it at a mouse it was more of like oh, my God, like, it's a super stressful situation. Interesting. In though, okay. though I never – I didn't take any of that literally. I like that better. I, I thought the scissors represented cutting yourself off from something. But mm. that's that's me. I don't think that's the intention of the movie. I mean, but. why
1: would he be cutting it open? What other reason would he be cutting it open? Just to see what was under, just to see if he was healed or, or ready to be undone? I don't know. Like, like, to me, it seemed like he did it to stab him. There's definitely a frustration there. I don't know if, I don't know if we can go as
0: far as to say it was to kill him, but he was obviously frustrated with the baby and wanted something to change. Maybe he wanted to punish him. Maybe he just thought, oh no, something needs to change. Like this kid needs to be able to like walk on his own and get the fuck out of here or something. So he so just start stab out. him to get no, him off No, no. Of the this stabbing table. comes after the fact that, oh my God, like my child is having a, a, a horrible, painful death at the moment. Gotcha. You know.
3: Oh, so you thought it was an act of mercy.
0: I thought it was more of like, Oh my god, I'm freaking out right now and then like at the time it it was like he kinda gave in to his darkest impulse. Okay, let's say let's,
3: let's say even if it is that then it's really interesting because I think that still fits within this sort of psychoanalytic reading. Because then it's to to Ryan's question earlier. He said, you know, so is this film kind of saying that we have to do to do this sort of thing in order to get to satisfaction? I no, it's I it's really not. You didn't say that. You didn't say. What, what did you ask?
1: Oh no, no. I, I mean, I, I I I'm not saying that that the movie telling us we should. But, no, no, you but were the, asking but the me. The guy in
3: the movie. No, oh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. You were asking me if that's what I was saying, and I don't I don't think it's making like a normative claim like this is what you must do like you must sacrifice your children or you must like castrate yourself or whatever but i think what it's showing is that this is like one of the maybe torments of being human is that we are perpetually doing this we're cut off from the object of our desire and that we are perpetually like immolating ourselves there is like self-flagellation there is some sort of self-immolation self- Um, mortification that is taking place in that strange tension between getting the thing that we want and then kind of not being able to get the thing that we want. Does that make sense? So I don't know that it's like, you must do this. I think it's just kind of like, fuck, we just do do this. So then to what Jared and Adam are saying, this would fit into that because then it's kind of like he didn't mean to do it, but he kind of, he got stuck in the situation and then he was like, fuck, now what do I do? And he kind of just responded and then he had to do it. So that would it's kind of like you're thrown into a situation that isn't of your own choosing, and you kind of have to just respond. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the mailbag. This one is from
0: John. He's uh, writing about Battle Royale. Have you seen Battle Royale? Adam? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I love
2: the Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we don't talk about that. <laughs>
0: He says, hey, guys, I completely agree with Jared's initial assertion on this one. While anyone can appreciate this movie and recognize it as an ex- excellent piece of filmmaking, familiarity with Japanese culture increases that appreciation immensely. It's not only Katano's presence, but other things, too, like the particular mechanics of Japanese schools, the extreme pressure students feel to get into a good school, the unique generational dynamics, which are unlike anywhere else in the world, etc. Finally, I have a question. Do you think that a piece of fiction is less valuable if it's mainly appreciated by a limited tar- a limited target audience when its themes are not outright universal but pertain to a specific culture?
1: What do no. you guys think about that? Hell no. Different strokes for different folks. Sometimes it's uh, a
0: <laughs> few
1: people, and if it works for them, you know. I mean, I love, like, Enter the Void someone brought up. I fucking love Enter the Void. Not very many people can sit through that whole movie, but it's a work of fucking art.
2: Would you... Do you think you'd appreciate the movie more or less if you – where's the director from? Amsterdam? France. France?
3: Okay, yeah. Would you well, – if he's, you were – Yeah, he's like Chilean and French.
2: Right. You know, yeah, so if way. you were yeah. if you were more European or South American, do you think you would enjoy you it more? Sh-
1: Certainly, kind of like we were saying in the episode, you pick up on references that, you know, I certainly, having been brought up here, wouldn't have got. But I don't think that makes it any less valuable that, that it's – because I, I, I don't know. I love movies that are, f- like, very regional, you know, like – a certain region you know clueless is a great example <laughs> you know it, it's right so a, many la jokes <laughs> it's a very much captures one region of the country and then you know but people can relate to it all around the world you know but yeah you probably would get more jokes if you're from southern california
0: yeah know. and i don't and as far as themes that are outright universal you got to be careful with that because if it's completely universal then it's probably going to be the worst thing in the world like what does that mean i don't think there's a a truly universal audience. A movie
2: about breathing,
3: I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Does that oh, right. Exist? Real quick, just because I know that people they'll correct us and give us shit. Uh, Gaspar Noé is Argentinian, not Chilean. Just because you know, oh. I don't. He's not don't. French either. Uh, he lives in France, but he's from Argentina. Oh.
0: All right. So this one is from Yosef. He says, love the podcast. Sometimes I wish you wouldn't talk over each other, but otherwise, (laughs) I love it. Can I butt
2: in real quick now?
0: I I
1: just said sorry over that. All
0: right. This question, although he doesn't direct it to Ryan, I'm going to direct it to Ryan (laughs) because he says, my question is, if you could recut the second and third Matrix movies into something else, what would you do? You're allowed to name a couple scenes that aren't in existence now and pretend that you have the material to work with alongside the existing footage. So you said in our Matrix Reloaded one that you uh, you knew you knew what you would do if you were, if you were the Wachowskis.
1: So mm-hmm. what would you do with the second and third movies? So I I can only use footage from those nah, two movies. Nah, fuck that. Do whatever you want. Well, I mean, I would then I would use I would say my story from the the other where where where, where, where Neo gets to the Matrix source, uh, uh, hits the lever. All the people that are in the Matrix get to uh, get unlocked, and everyone gets free. And then we, we take over the world back from the machines and stuff. But is it still <laughs> covered in darkness? Because well, uh, we figure that out, yeah. you know.
0: And, and then that happens at the end of the second one, or like at the beginning of the. That's second about.
1: One? That's this that, in the oh yeah first act of the of the, of the second one yeah okay. that's like the big turning of, of thing and then we you know we figured out by the end I hate cliffhanger movies I think they should be outlawed by the U.S. Congress and <laughs> so I can't I I, I, I I don't like the to be continued trend so I definitely wouldn't end on a cliffhanger I'd end with us taking over the machines but then you know there'd be room for more. I, I watched your guys's uh, Matrix Reloaded
2: uh, video uh, your uh, your your recap and. I, it's one of those movies where I remember trying to like it the more I watched it, and you reminded you you nailed it perfectly. Why I think I hate that movie, like yeah. art, it's not in the hate. It's just I feel sad for because I think you you perfectly illustrate that movie didn't need to exist.
0: Yeah, um, we it was uh, my relationship with the movie changes over time. I actually I've seen it probably like twenty five times, and this most recent time we did it like two episodes ago for the podcast, and I was like. This has happened to me like twice in the last couple of years where I'm like, oh, my God, I get it now. And then I'm like last and then last time I was like, oh, my God, I get it now. Mm-hmm. And so now, yeah, as a move. And this is basically the conclusion we came to as a movie. It sucks as a piece of action philosophy. It's rewarding if you think about it really, really hard.
2: <laughs> I still don't understand cake that gives you an orgasm. Just... Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Very confusing. Were uh, there, weren't there werewolves in that movie? There were with, yeah. that you can only kill with
0: silver bullets.
2: Just right over my head, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I don't think there's anything smart to say about that, but
2: um... Juno Reactor was good. That's the music.
0: Oh, during the during the uh... <laughs> the burly
2: brawl and the uh, oh. the, the freeway chase scene, I remember listening to the soundtrack okay. a lot when I so was we, in college. I, I would, yes, we talked yeah. about that. The soundtrack is so good for it's that movie. Pretty damn good, but yeah, you're right. It takes what about an hour before any actual plot shows up. The you're only like, yeah. it's interesting. I was doing
0: the recap for that one, and basically the second half of the recap basically starts when he gets to the architect because that's the whole movie the whole movie is basically what the architect tells neo you know which is not very exciting to watch or listen to
1: yeah i cut all the exposition out from 45 minutes down to one
0: yeah all right this last email is from resorma 12 he says Eyes wide shut, man. Just the discussion alone put me in a weird, uncomfortable, psychosexual state. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Tell me, what is it you guys think is the true nature of the erotic? Is this nature changeable? And what do you think Kubrick was trying to say about the erotic sex sexuality? Also, Austin, I'm very curious to hear about your research. You've mentioned Lacan and concepts relating to philosophy of language. Can you please go into detail about what areas of philosophy you study? Please and thank you. All right, Jared, uh, what's
1: the true nature of the erotic? <laughs> and uh, go.
0: I think Austin <laughs>
3: can probably answer that without sounding like a moron better than me. No, well, first of all, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, because I don't want to bore you uh, and other people who aren't as interested in my research interests now. But um, uh, so the true nature from a psychoanalytic Lacanian standpoint of the erotic, uh, I mentioned this in the main part of this episode, is that Lacan says that there is no such thing as a sexual relationship. And what he means by that in a, in a very simple sense is that all of our um, erotic desire is mediated through the symbolic. It's mediated through language and it's mediated through what we might call fantasy. So when I uh, – I'm a straight man, so I'm attracted to women. But if I'm desiring my sexual partner, even in the amorous activity itself, it's never just two bodies fucking, which is important in Eyes Wide Shut because that's – remember the, at the very end of the movie, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, when they're trying to resolve these tensions that they've had. And we talked about this in the podcast about their, their conflicting fantasies and the, the, the whole idea of these kind of weird understandings of sexual desire and things like that that were haunting them. And she says the first thing that they need to do as soon as possible is they need to fuck. Right? Because there's this idea that they need to like reinstitute the sexual relationship, quote unquote, even though it's been pretty much established uh, throughout the film that the sexual relationship is always thwarted because it's mediated by these fantastic images. And I don't think this is – this is like some sort of super creative reading. I think that Kubrick was very clear that this is a psychosexual Freudian inspired film and I think he very clearly was trying to kind of get at something very similar – that the idea of just the pure immediate, which means that there's nothing mediating the relationship. It's just a pure directional kind of connection. The pure immediate sexual relationship is impossible, and you always have something mediating that image. The fantasy, um, the, the kind of image that you are projecting onto the other person, um, the cultural impositions of what beauty or sex is. You know, um, I'm currently seeing a Brazilian girl, and one of the things that she always talks about is how Brazilian dudes love a big booty, Right. So when you look at like music videos and stuff like that, it's all like these Brazilian girls with huge big booties and a lot of times they got cellulite. And in America, and especially in Los Angeles, we don't like cellulite. Even though we like the big booty, we want the big booty without the cellulite, you know? So either way, there are these different like regional fantasies that mediate our sexual desires or the things that make us attracted to a, a sexual or a potential sexual partner. So that's the that's the main idea from a psychoanalytic perspective that I think Eyes Wide Shut is really exploring is that there is no such thing as a pure, immediate sexual relationship.
0: My answer is the true nature of the erotic is that uh, people don't want to die, and uh, that's it. All right. <laughs> All How right. Sexy. It's so dark. Yeah. All <laughs> right. So that is going to wrap it up for today. Adam, where can we find you on the internet?
2: You can check me out and a bunch of other fine gentlemen and women sometimes uh, over at Funhouse. So
0: that's YouTube.com/slash/Funhouse. That's uh,
2: F-U-N-H-A-U-S. It has a weird German dialect.
0: Also check me out. I am on Adam's podcast today. Absolutely, yeah. Where we're talking about directorial debuts, and we actually briefly talk about Eraserhead. Yeah. So um, you can check out Film House on their YouTube channel or uh, on it's on iTunes. It's on Andrew, Stitcher, SoundCloud, yes, it's a,
2: anywhere you you use that Google search engine and you'll find it. Yeah. You engaged listener, you. It's Film House. F I
0: L M H A U S. <laughs> yeah, we we use that little
1: additive to death. The house, yeah, yeah. All right, Ryan, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me at Ryan's Game Show and Ryan's uh, uh, and Ryan
3: Shorts on Facebook and YouTube. Weekly comedy videos just for you. I love you. And Austin. Uh, you can hit me up, as I said a minute ago, on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I also co-host a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. So you can just, again, use the Google machine and you can find us. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. What are we doing next week? I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you should do Starship Troopers I'm throwing oh, that one out there. I
1: love it. Every time you
0: say, I, I just I think of the Yes it. song. Is it? Is the title based on the Yes song? Starship Trooper.
1: Possibly. It was I'm a book before no a movie, talking. and no I don't know. It, it has like, nothing to do with that
2: song. Okay. If you like Robocop and you like the 90s, I think you'll like Starship Troopers. You're gonna fucking love it, Jared. I okay. I, I watched it I'm as so a, jealous. I watched it as a test yesterday. I was just testing some streaming in my home, and I was like, I'll see if this Blu-ray version of uh, *Sergeant Brothers and I couldn't stop watching it. Okay. It's a perfect film. Top awesome. 10 for
0: me. <laughs> oh, wow. That's okay. Really? Cool. All right.
2: Yeah. Cool. Yes. Okay. All right,
0: guys. Well, that's it. You can catch me on uh, Instagram at Father of Woody or check out our Wisecrack Instagram account at Wisecrack. Twitter at Wisecrack. You know the drill. Watch the new show. Watch the new show on our YouTube channel which came out on Tuesday. It's called The Film Tourist. We got one on the Wolf of Wall Street out today and then we got another one next month on The Shining. So that's it. Thanks guys.
3: Signing off.
1: Goodbye from Hollywood, California.
3: Laters.